Welcome to Noclip, the podcast that's like a book club for people who don't think that books reward them enough for being good at them. I'm Chad Rothermans. And I'm Andy Kinnick. And today, we're going to be talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, uh, which was developed by Monolith Soft, published by Nintendo, and was released in 2010 on the Wii, and then the Definitive Edition in 2020 on the Switch. But first, if you could give us a like or a rating, it'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, Xenoblade, whether or not it is the definitive edition, uh, is an RPG, and you would struggle, I think, to pin down, especially in 2010, what elements of what kinds of RPGs it, it takes from the most. Yeah, um... Yeah, it is a by Monolith Soft, who are a Japanese developer, and it is very much a JRPG. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it takes a lot of influence from from Western design as well, um, kind of specifically MMOs. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Monolith Soft was formed by um, I think it's Tetsuya Takahashi. Is his name? Um, who worked at Square, and he's the guy who behind Xeno Gears. Um, and then he ended up leaving the company and forming his own studio, and he made Xeno Saga. Mm-hmm. Then eventually they got bought by Nintendo, and that's when they made Xenoblade. Um, and I think it was one of those things where like the studio wasn't super popular, and they kind of just like got more experimental because they didn't really have like expectations that the game would sell super well. So they were like, let's just do this and that. Uh, so it leads to, well, I think, a lot of that experimentation they did with, like, kind of mixing and matching Eastern and Western stuff. Yeah. I was introduced to the whole, the the Xeno franchise. The spiritual franchise. Yeah. Through Xeno Saga back in the early 2000s on the PlayStation 2. And there is, there isn't a ton of design similarity, but there is, like, a hugeness that I think is what Monolith Soft particularly specializes in. Yeah, scale. Yeah. Everything is scaled up to about as high as it goes. Like, even from, like, the the most minute things where every system in the game has, like, a million levels to it, you level up in this game faster and more than you do in most RPGs. Uh, the world is huge the the like quest lines are really long everything about these games and in Xeno Saga just everything in that game is like huge and buried under a mountain of just numbers and stuff mm-hmm. uh, and part of it like especially aesthetically is really impressive uh and it's amazing that a team that isn't as prolific as a square is able to maintain all of this stuff in one piece of software. Yeah, um, I think that's one reason why um, their previous games didn't catch on as much. Like, Xenogears, I know, is basically unfinished, and the second <laughs> disc, a lot of it is, like, just a character narrating what happened uh, instead of you playing it. Good. Uh, like, in a cutscene, because um, they ran out of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, yeah, even with, like, Xeno Saga, yeah, they would have had less money because they're not uh, Square Enix. Yeah, they're not being uh, bankrolled. But they kept being a 
super ambitious with their titles and i think this calls some of that stuff like even though this does have a shitload of stuff in it like they scale back like the visual fidelity and they do like i kind of think they simplify the main story a bit um compared to like some like at least the way you would have thought of jrpg stories at the time as being like super complicated and Mm -hmm. having lots of like uh esoteric stuff in them yeah, um, not so, to, like, go through the narrative, like, right now. There are multiple points in the game where somebody asks one of the protagonists, like, what are you doing? And they're like, we don't really know. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> I, I feel like, yeah, it scales back on some of that stuff. Um, and I think that's one reason that these games b- did become popular. Because mm-hmm. they're more accessible and less, like, uh, obtuse feeling to, like, the casual player. Yeah, and to somebody like me, this game feels like it strikes the right balance of being, like, a game that has complicated systems, but those systems not being difficult to understand. Um, So rather than, like, Xenosaga's, like, ridiculous, uh, like, email system where you can, like, invest in companies to make extra money, Mm -hmm. which is, like almost as hard to understand as actual stock trading this game is like uh affinity system which ends up adding a lot to the game and is like pretty easy to get your head around you use two people a lot together they're gonna have a higher affinity and that's gonna have effects on like four or five different systems throughout the game yeah, and I don't know if, like, Nintendo had any impact on that. They were like, we're going to be making this for the Wii, so we have to, like, make it a little bit more palatable mm-hmm. uh, to a wider audience. So, But I don't know if that's the case at all. But, um, yeah, like, they, you brought up the uh, affinity system. I think that's a, a good place to kind of jump in, uh, in more specifically. Um, it's one of my favorite things about this game. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about Chrono Trigger and um, Dragon Age Origins on this podcast, and I didn't bring it up on either of those, but I feel like it's surprisingly rare to find a JRPG that focuses this much on the characters as like a group of friends mm-hmm. um, in the way that those these three games do, the ones that I brought up. Um, and Xenoblade, uh, I think, does it especially interestingly because it does it both in the story and mechanically the affinity system i think is really cool because it like especially like the different like skill trees now you link different skills between players it's like a manifestation of like who we know and like who we spend time with affects us right and how we grow and develop and i seeing that reflected in a game is cool and it just makes a surprising amount of sense in an rpg like, I think the affinity system is really cool, and it also relates to, like, your chain attacks and to the uh, the gem crafting and the uh, heart-to-hearts. Yep. If you want, like, narrative motivation to, to do that stuff. Not to mention, like, certain side quests deal yeah. with it, and, like, there are other elements of the game. The uh, Your affinity link chants in uh, whatever those are called, skill link, or not... Um, fuck chain links yeah that's what they're called in chain attacks are related to like how much the affinity between the characters is so yeah it ties into a bunch of different stuff yeah and um you got me the xenoblade like uh monado archive i think is what it's called but it's like a 
Yeah, I'm not, it's all in Japanese, so I'm yeah. not even really sure what the name is. <laughs> sure. But um, it uh, it's like a compilation of like concept art and like design documents and stuff on the game. It comes with a poster uh, that has just an affinity chart for every character in the whole game because affinity also affects like towns and uh, side quests and stuff too. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like how you were saying. It's it's uh it's how it's presented. It it starts out like simple. It's just like how good of friends are these two characters, <laughs> and then it expands from that into like a whole bunch of other areas of the game. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's one way this is like more smartly designed than its predecessors is that like it starts small and grows yeah instead of dumping a bunch on you at the beginning yeah and to sort of like spin off of that and and call to attention sort of why this works as well as it does because there is like there's a world where this system sucks big balls and is not good um where it is such like a purely mechanical exercise that it loses all meaning but I think that one of the things that this game does uniquely well in the genre of super long, expansive RPGs is it never, to me, and this is going to become more surprising the longer this podcast goes on, mm-hmm. uh, so just buckle your fucking seatbelts, <laughs> uh, n- I never felt like I needed to really grind, uh, and that applies to the affinity system as well. There's like a... Uh, an affinity system between the characters that levels up based on a number of different things. And then there's an affinity system in place for each of the primary areas of the game, which you get just by talking to and completing side quests for the individual NPCs scattered throughout each of them. Uh, And you naturally level those up a pretty good amount without having to really focus on it, uh, which combined with that simpler narrative does actually give you this feeling of like actual growth at like you're laddering up through all of these things. And there's like a thing in the game that tells you that that is true. So it's like, you're like, Oh, okay. So we just did this big thing in Alchemoth or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was a big deal for the people there. It was a big event for, for them in their lives you could imagine that if you were somebody living in that town then having it happen would be newsworthy be on the front page of the fucking alchemoth times or whatever Uh and you check your affinity tree and alchemoth's got two stars now and you're like oh okay so the game recognizes that and it's just because the systems have a really natural growth to them um so i really liked that i think the game uh if if there are games that are ambitious to the point where they bite off more than they can chew, this is somehow like mathematically figured out the appropriate amount of food to have in its mouth at one time. <laughs> Just the right amount to bite off. Yeah, and has bit off the appropriate amount and is chewing it comfortably yes. the for appropriate a pretty long run yeah, time. Yeah, the, the appropriate amount for optimal mastication <laughs> has been calculated. <laughs> uh, no, I think you're right. Um and I yeah like, I don't want to like overstate it or anything, but like yeah it 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 has a number of these like secondary or like supplementary systems that I think really all prop each other up, mm-hmm. and yeah like end up you end up with a game world you can just dump a lot of time into because it always there's always stuff to do. Yeah. There's like I think like four hundred and eighty 
side quests or something like that. Probably. I think like they added like an extra eighty in the in the definitive edition. Um, and yeah, and it as you were saying, like it doesn't feel like you really need to grind if you're like doing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes the story accessible in such a way that you can kind of rush through and ignore that stuff, but then you will need to grind. So. Yeah, as somebody who played a lot of side quests, not all of them, uh, I didn't, like, check a list, but I know that also some of them are exclusive. Like, you can take a path in certain side quests that locks out mm. other side quests. So, and wisely, there is no, like, achievement for completing all side quests. So, there you go. Mm-hmm. But, um, like, I I did do a lot of it, a lot of stuff, and that is most likely why i never felt the need to like stop and grind Mm -hmm. i will say like maybe one of the only instances of grinding that i did in the game uh was like right at the very end i wanted to max out the affinity between all the characters and the way that you do that if you're uh somebody with an internet connection and Mm. can just (laughs) look this up and find out is you attack the same enemy who has a spike that inflicts sleep over and over again while you have like your primary character has a debuff resist whatever Mm -hmm. and then you just press the b button to wake people up (laughs) (laughs) and i did spend like an hour waking people up to grind the affinity between all the characters to max Mm -hmm. which is one not fun and bad and so I don't want to, like, overlook it as being, like, the instance of grinding I did. But also, an hour is not that bad, especially if you're familiar with just, like, MMOs generally. Yeah, I've grinded a lot longer in, like, Pokemon, yeah. for example. <laughs> so really not that bad, all things con- all things considered, even when I was forced to grind a bit. Yeah, and then on the opposite side of the coin, um, my the first time I played this, I played the Wii version. It was like in 2016, and I did it on the side, like mm-hmm. we were already doing the podcast. So I just kind of like rushed through the game <laughs> uh, and ignored a lot of the side content. And I was like, we should do this for the podcast so I can like revisit it and give it more time. But then I ended up playing the sequels and stuff, and then the definitive edition came out. So I just replayed it anyway yeah. before we ever got around to doing it. But yeah, uh, it's definitely uh, much better enjoyed, obviously, I think, by taking your time with it. Mm-hmm. Get to stop and smell the roses and appreciate those side uh, side systems. I will say some of the side quests are abysmal in the oh, way yeah. that MMO side quests tend to be. Yeah, like they're they're satisfying like if you're if at least for me anyway, and mm-hmm. I feel like we think about these kinds of uh parts of games very differently than each other. Um but to me they're enjoyable in the way that like I'm just really into this game and want more stuff to do in it kind of way. Like most of them don't have much substance to them, or if they do it's usually like narrative related, like are you interacting with like a interesting or silly character or something Mm -hmm. yeah there's a there's a difference between the side quest that asks you to do something mechanical which i have mixed feelings on there's some of them the monster quests and the challenge quests i think are good because they just sort of sit passively in the background and you will just finish them uh, and that's all good. That's well and good as far as I'm concerned. Like yeah. that's they're just basically giving you a little bit of bonus experience and cash 
to go along with what you're already getting. Yeah, like, it's like anytime you get to an area, it's like the first, like, four or five you pick up, you'll just do along the way. Yeah. Uh, and I I personally really love the narrative side quests. This is uh, the what we were talking about in the Nier Automata episode, uh, if you have listened to that, is, like, this idea of side quests that are bad. <laughs> like, they're not designed in a way that is interesting mechanically, but they give you a backstory of something that is interesting. And as long as the writing is good... I love those. And a lot of the times in these, like, the characters are kind of one note sometimes, but there are others that they put a weird amount of effort into fleshing out. Yeah. And those side quests can be really good. Yeah, it's I, I feel like they have to have, like, teams of people or just multiple different people, like, who working independently of each other, mm-hmm. I think, on writing, like, a lot of the side quest content. Because, like, I know this stood out even more in Xenoblade X, the spiritual sequel to this. Um, like, there's this whole involved side quest about, like, this scientist who's, like, building a time machine. And it starts out, he's just like, go get these materials. And then um, he, like, builds a time machine, but, like, it won't work. And I won't spoil anything. But, like, it, it has pretty significant implications on like the story and the world of the game mm-hmm. and it's just a missable side quest that's like surprisingly meaty and interesting yeah and so you get that kind of stuff it like just sprinkled amongst all of like the really generic side quests there's a, a side quest in the main game that is just like deviously long it it's like it takes place it took me to complete the full set of quests probably close to four hours mm. and it is spread out over like 11 different individual side quests that is a story about a nopon from frontier village and it's like you go through these side quests that introduce you to the people who work in the pollen works and there's like a foreman and then these two other guys and you have to decide which one of them should take over as foreman when he retires Mm. and you make the decision and then based on which decision you take it takes you down one of these other paths but the unchanging version of it that is there through all of this is that one of them suspects another nopon of stealing pollen orbs and taking it and doing something weird with them Unrelated to this, there's another side quest with a nopon in the Satoral Marsh. Marsh. Yeah. Yeah. Who asks you to go get him a bunch of stuff and bring it back. And it, like, becomes increasingly obvious and, like, not, like, this is not a particularly well-written part of the game. Mm -hmm. But that he is not sick and wanting to stay, like, quarantine himself as he says he is. He's just on the run and is hiding out in this cave and having you bring him supplies. Uh, And it turns out that he is in cahoots with this other Nopon, so they've now connected them. Mm -hmm. uh, And is creating like a drug-like substance and then selling them to the citizens of Alchemoth who have like a little club room that you have to break into by getting a membership card, which requires you going... Like, it's fucking in-depth. And then they bring this guy back, like the drug kingpin, in Future Connected in the DLC, Ah. which came out a decade later. (laughs) (laughs) And you can miss all of this and never, ever see it. Mm -hmm. It is insanity. 
Yeah, I feel like I started that quest, mm-hmm. but did not finish it. I like, think most people yeah. would. Uh, I It makes me think um, that uh, these games could really benefit from a The Witcher-style, like, secondary quest uh, section to the menu that highlights side quests that are, like, more important, air yeah. quotes, or more sig- or substantial. I fully agree, because there was a... For every because that's all great. Those. Like, I'd love to do that whole side quest, but I didn't know that it was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, if for every one of those, there's also one that's like, go kill one monster and come back. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ugh. Like, I really hate that being like... Because it, it, it hides the good shit. Oh, yeah. Underneath it, mountains of other and stuff. And they put that shit on Front Street. Like, mm-hmm. in, I think at least the first handful of towns... There's somebody who will just give you like four kill quests in a row that are just that. Like, go kill three monsters. Mm-hmm. Go kill two of these monsters. Go kill five of those monsters. And those are meant to be the kind, as we said, that you just kind of do. Yeah. Like, you just open your map and you see the, the red exclamation points. And you're like, oh, yeah, here's some monsters to kill uh, for the side quest. So it's just kind of like. As you say, like, to pump up your level, like, to just naturally have you, like, gaining levels throughout the story and stuff. But, yeah, it does. It totally hides the good stuff or, like, it conditions you to just kind of be like, uh, side quests are just, uh, fetch quests. Yeah, it's the conditioning that I take issue with because it is, like... Like, you brought up Nier, Mm -hmm. and I had a similar experience with that where, like, at the beginning I was doing the side quests and then most of them were just, like, really shallow, and so then I stopped paying as much attention to them. Which is even weirder in the context of Nier, because, like, this game makes you... If you've played MMOs, it probably reminds you of them in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And if you haven't played MMOs, then you do still have sort of, like, an idea of this style of JRPG structure. And side quests are generally, in those games literally just like a uh, an equip a money and equipment grind that's what they're there for mm-hmm. and it's really strange in the context of near because it is a game that we praised for its writing like this is a game that takes a lot of its weird shit very seriously and like has a reason behind a lot of it so it was weird when so many of those side quests just felt like nothing yeah this game has an extra hurdle to get over that it doesn't clear where you are conditioned just genre wide that you don't need to give a shit about the side quests and can just do the ones that you want to mm-hmm. if you're if they're convenient yeah like especially yeah like genre um expectations like i was just, i think other recent jrpgs i played are something like dragon quest 11 mm-hmm. and like the amount of side quests that has is like not even like an eighth of the amount in this game uh so yeah it's just not as common so yeah like it is easy to overlook yeah but there's sure. some real gems in there hidden under just piles of of things that were shoveled on top of them it's like (laughs) the game came out on the wii as a a a commentary on the games on that console yeah you just gotta pan for that gold (laughs) it's worth it but i guess moving on to other mechanics stuff um the combat system and the party um is something i wanted to get your take on because I know, as I said, my first playthrough was very casual and uh, quick, uh, quick and dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, like, 
only really using Shulk, Ryan, and Sharla on my first playthrough. Yeah. Like, they set you up with, like, your jack-of-all-trades, uh, DPS main character. Right. Your tank and your healer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that works perfect. <laughs> uh, and didn't really experiment as much with the other characters. Like, especially, uh, Ricky and Melia, uh, seemed like off-putting to me uh on subsequent playthroughs i I experimented a lot more or my subsequent playthrough my second one um i experimented a lot more but still found myself coming back to like shulk ryan and charla or shark shulk dunban and charla right um so and i know you experimented with all the characters a lot (laughs) and had lots of different party compositions that you used so i wanted to get your uh, opinions on that yeah, I think, like, the way that I would have started this, uh, if we had recorded it, like, three weeks ago, mm-hmm. is just being like, this is a game that people, that is said a lot that this is a game that you love or hate, because it is such a really specific entry in the genre, like, all JRPG fans wouldn't necessarily like this game because it goes out of its way to be a little bit weird, mm-hmm. and all other people might not like the game because of how deep in the JRPG trappings it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I'm sure one, the one millionth time somebody said this, but I did find this game to be like pretty okay. Like better than I thought it was by a lot. Uh, but the key thing that holds it back for me, I think is that I don't really love this combat system and you do a lot of fighting in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the Shulk problem that we'll call it yeah. is definitely not a you thing. I think the game gears players, especially people new to the, the franchise toward just playing Shulk for the whole game. Oh yeah. The Monado arts are just too useful. Mm-hmm. And he only has the like maximum bars worth of arts to choose from mm-hmm. so and it's not as much to juggle exactly like it feels like it ramps up complexity a lot when you try and use other characters as the party leader mm-hmm. because you have to actually go in and be like okay what do these do the game even in the definitive edition doesn't tell you that you can only have one aura active at once and so like when you get dunban by default he has like four auras on his hot bar right and so like even the ai will just override auras middle of the fight uh, which is is awful like it's not what you want to do <laughs> uh but this game what what the combat system in action lacked for me i think it made up for and this is why my opinion has changed in the last few weeks mm-hmm. more toward i just like this game a lot uh the complexity in those systems is what made me really fall in love with it uh in a way that i did not expect um and i avoided using shulk after the first half of the game just so that i could learn and get better with the other characters and figure mm-hmm. out what they I, all were that's probably the smart thing to do I mean, I think it's more of just, like, a my need for, like, obsessive variety. Shulk is plenty good enough oh, yeah. to get no, you through I mean, the whole game. But I feel like people who really like this game tend to skew to your side. Okay, that's fair, I guess. Um, But yeah, yeah, yeah. Shulk is definitely, like, I, I hated not using him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even though you're right, it does get tedious 
or you didn't say that, but I do feel like it does get tedious using the same character the whole game. I didn't say it, but I do agree. Uh, yeah, but um, he's just like I, I just those Monado arts are so hard to give up for me. Yeah. And my other problem, and I do this in all uh, RPGs, is I hate not having the healer. Right. Even though like high level play. Uh, supposedly Charlotte's supposed to be the worst character uh in the whole party but like for me like i was using like towards the end of the game uh shulk dunban and fiora mm-hmm. and any and i was just doing that while i was like running around uh just progressing and then when i would get to a boss i'm like all right fiora out charla in <laughs> yep because <laughs> i want the healer for the boss fight <laughs> uh so yeah like my old habits definitely died hard in this yeah. Well, there's, there are a couple of things, because I've done a fair amount of research into this as I was playing, mm-hmm. um, for the listener's benefit, because you obviously already know this. Uh, I went through the game game, and then I proceeded. I had a very boring June. This Xenoblade <laughs> fans, it's not because of Xenoblade. Xenoblade haters? Well, maybe, Link. Uh <laughs> But <laughs> I had a really boring June and not a whole lot happened. And so I spent a good amount of time just playing this game. Uh, and in order to draw out how much entertainment the game was providing me to the last available drop that it had in it, mm-hmm. I went as far as leveling and grinding and doing the stuff that I would need to do in order to beat super bosses in the game. And in order to beat super bosses, you have to do a lot of things that are like pure optimization stuff like the not the nitty gritty not flavorful not particularly fun stuff that mm-hmm. you don't want to think about especially when you're advertising your game uh-huh. uh and i think that that is the environment where people say charla is bad and that you don't yeah. need a healer yeah, I'm talking, like, there's this one channel that you probably found when you were looking this stuff up. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of it, so I can't shout it out. Uh, but he he goes over, like, all of, like, the, like, what you're saying. Like, what you need to do to, like, fight the super bosses and, like, what the best party compositions and the best art loadouts and right. et cetera and gems and all that. Um, and he, yeah, he's basically like, Charlotte sucks, don't ever use her. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, because... This game has, at least in my, like, very sheltered opinion, sort of the Overwatch problem, where they made all these cool characters, and then they made a healer. <laughs> it's like, I play it's healers. It's for people like me. Yeah. <laughs> who, who want that character that just heals. Yeah. Well, I think they should have just give it, because, like, if you look at the other characters' healing abilities, the only other one that is any good at all is Ricky who has one move that heals. Yep. And it's a good move, and that does a lot of healing, and it gives you more healing when you're debuffed, which is when you want more healing. Right. So it, like, is just a natural good fit, and that's why Ricky ended up on most of my team comps most of the time. But they made a lot of interesting, cool characters that I wanted to play as, but I play healers mm. all the time in most games. And I spent several hours of this game playing as Sharla just to see what it was like. And Charla is such a mess of design. Like, her special ability, which if you haven't played the game, everybody has a, a, a an action skill. I don't know what like it's called. Like a special art in the middle. Yeah. 
And it's all like Shulk's the Monado arts, which as Andy right. has described accurately, are fucking absurd and are just so good all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Dunban has one of the highest damaging moves in the game on his, uh, which Blossom Dance, yes, yeah. yeah, which is sick and good. Uh, Rhines is like a really utilitarian, like pulls focus because he's the Agro, he's the tank, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Charles is just bad. It just makes you stop moving or using abilities and auto attacking to cool off your oh, rifle. Yeah. Like if I assume that they thought that like having somebody able to heal all the time would be too good. It can be. Yeah, but this makes it too bad. Yeah. <laughs> and she gets like she'll go to cool down and then she just gets fucking obliterated. Mm-hmm. It's, My rifle's uh, getting hot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, um, shut up, <laughs> Gotta love those battle quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in Xenoblade 2, um, they made it so that when you topple enemies, they drop little healing vials. Right. Um, in addition, there are also heal abilities, um, depending on what blades you use. So, yeah, it's like, it's more customizable like you can rely on the topple healing or you can like play a healer more easily or have other characters be healers and mix and match right so well especially with the like blade system in that i don't know much yeah (laughs) it's like it's definitely i think uh was a weak spot that they identified and they have changed it in in subsequent games yeah, because Xenoblade 2 came out in 2019, right? Uh, the same year as the Switch launch. It was. It came out at like... Oh, really? Yeah. That's like 2017. Yeah, it was like September of that year, November of that year, I think. Yeah. So they actually had even more time between then and when they released the Definitive Edition. Because mm-hmm. as I was pointing out, the Future Connected... I, we've been calling it DLC. We'll probably still it's do that. It's an expansion. Yeah. And it's just, like, additional content that they added to the Definitive Edition. Feels like it tries to address the problems with the combat system by making uh, topple locking essentially not a thing because you can't do uh, chain attacks. They replaced that with a different thing. Um, And even, like, they... (laughs) Like, a lot of, like, the team comp problems are kind of getting done away with just by limiting you to having only four party members. So you mm-hmm. have pretty much everybody in your party at all times and you switch them out. Um, but yeah, it was like, there are issues with the combat system, but there's a lot of complexity to back it up. Oh yeah. No, I agree with that. I never oh, really yeah. gave my opinion on that. But... I'm just saying that Sharla totally goes against the grain of all of that. Oh, yeah. Cause like all of her best abilities are all healing abilities. So she's a character that does one thing. She isn't super fun to play. She's more fun to play than I thought she would be, mm-hmm. but not super fun. And her cooldown, cool-off action skill feels like it's a huge step too far in trying to balance her. Yeah, well, and one thing that they do um, that I really like, and it adds to like the accessibility we were talking about earlier, is they color code all of the mm-hmm. abilities um, like red abilities or like physical attack damage and yellow ones cause daze and pink ones cause cause break and stuff like that. Et cetera. Uh, et so cetera. you can tell at a glance. And then you look at Charla's and all of hers are like purple and blue, <laughs> uh, which <laughs> are different than the colors of all the other characters who may have like maybe one blue ability mm-hmm. or like one purple one. 
but it's mostly like red, blue, yellow, yeah. or a red, green, yellow. I always got fucked up because like, yeah, you have like red... so you can tell the difference just by looking at her abilities. Yeah, because like blue indicates a healing ability, and then purple is like a status effect. And mm-hmm. I think the only one we're not mentioning is is orange, which is uh, an aura, but like not really relevant because when the colors come up it's in chain attacks because mm-hmm. as you do attacks of the same type they stack yeah and you get a multiplier on your damage which is why ryan ends up being a really surprisingly good dps character because if you can do uh a chain link up to get i think it maxes out at times five his sword drive move will just like level a mountain <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's yeah the chain attacks are what dictate that like what characters are the best yeah yeah like uh shulk um dunban fiora and shulk ryan dunban or dunban fiora ryan those Mm -hmm. are like the best party combinations yeah according to the internet yeah according to people on the internet yeah because they all have red abilities that they can just clobber things with (laughs) in addition to other stuff right the uh to to like go back to I guess like the initial thing here is like the the party composition that I ultimately ended up running with for most of the game was uh, Fiora Dunban Ricky though I did swap Dunban and Ryan out a lot mm-hmm. uh, but these were that was just like my efficient party the one that I like to use and because I used this party composition I didn't really do the topple lock thing that people talk about as being too good yeah. And I think the reason that Fiora was my favorite party leader in the end is because I well I like her her like mechanical design. I like that she is a character that focuses on auto attacks as opposed to arts, um, which is me not engaging with the the <laughs> MMO combat system. Sure, because I just don't have to push buttons. I don't have to manage cooldowns. Really, I just sort of do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like. <laughs> I don't know, it's just, like, you got to use stuff with her that you didn't really with everybody else. Like, I had very little reason to put, like, double attack gems on other characters. Mm-hmm. But, like, she makes fantastic use of them. Because they're, like, you get the double attack, she naturally has good double attack stat. And her, uh, she has a skill later that turns all of her double attacks into automatic crits. Right. And then you can give her, like, we'll get into skill links, because that's, like, my favorite thing in the design of this game. Mm -hmm. But there's lots of little synergies built in. Um, But I I did spend some time playing as every character in the game. And honestly, Ricky, Melia, and Sharla were the only ones that I felt like I just didn't like playing. Yeah, I I don't think that's uncommon. I I think one of the reasons... um, the DLC like focuses on Melia is because uh, they wanted people to play her more and try and understand how to like play her better. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the story stuff, but um, yeah, like I think Fiora feels like s- kind of similar to Shulk if they made Shulk like a regular character that didn't <laughs> have all the Monado stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, with some of her own unique things in there too. So. Yeah, she is one of the best characters, uh, who I totally neglected my first casual playthrough. Also, shout-outs to 
the drone system, mm-hmm. which is fantastic, and I wish that I that like other characters had this, where she just doesn't have leg armor in comparison to everybody else, and is replaced with drones, which are things that sit on her back. Uh, by the way, I mentioned earlier, uh, if you haven't played this game before, etc., etc., here's how the combat system works. This is another game that's really precious about its spoilers mm. uh and we're not going to go through the entire podcast calling fiora seven and i've already said fiora like a dozen oh, yeah. times we could maybe splice in a spoiler thing at the beginning <laughs> so if you are an established xenoblade fan i apologize that i didn't fairly warn everyone but here's your actual warning and Fiora being a mechon mm-hmm. uh uses different like armor setups than everybody else and she just has like a thing like a her leg armor slot or is like a thing that sits on her back and when you use the ability it gets you do it does a different attack based on what like thing you have that's fucking cool mm-hmm. and that also makes her feel more like shulk because it seems like she has some variety in her set skill yeah i've heard people call her a shulk clone which i think is too harsh yeah um but yeah no she is um yeah i think that makes her like fun to use um yeah especially if you play for a while and you get tired of shulk <laughs> she comes in as the last party member you get so you can like easily transition to having her uh do a lot of the fighting and she also her weapons by default can hurt mechon uh because they're related to the the monado as well but uh yeah yeah you get a lot of of stuff sort of late game that just like by default damages mechon which made it really like because i wasn't paying attention to it Mm -hmm. i was looking sort of at numbers and stuff and then, like, I would get into a fight and somebody wouldn't be able to hurt Mechon, and I'm like, ah, fuck, I forgot about Yeah, this. it's so important in the beginning. Yeah. And then it just is very de-emphasized <laughs> the further you go. Which I think is probably a good thing. It's good mechanically. It does feel weird story-wise. Uh, yeah. And that's also part of why it feels like they emphasize you using Shulk for so long. Is because he has enchant. Yeah. Like, until you get... Like, you have to use him for a long time. Yeah. Like, until you get Fiori, you don't have anybody else who just, by default, can hurt Mechon. So mm-hmm. you just have to have him. It's weird. Yep. Um, but... you want to talk about that skill link system? I do. A lot. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to talk about it a lot. It... It is burning a hole in me. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know that I have all that much, mm-hmm. but I love the skill link system less because of the more grindy nature of it and more because it's the exact kind of like synergy building, mix and match skill tree that I really like. Mm-hmm. I said similar things about the sphere grid in Final Fantasy X. And I think that that mostly applies here as well. Um, the, it Basically, you have like a... Every time you level up, you get a little point. Uh, and it took me... I think I was 40 hours into the game <laughs> before I realized that you could disable skills that you linked mm-hmm. and get the coins back. I just thought that once you spent them, they were gone forever. They were like TMs or something. Yeah. 
Uh, but once I found that out, it beca- the system became a lot more rich, and I I right. got really into like just like going in and uh, if I use this thing that makes your equipment five lighter, then my agility is going to go down to this, and I'll have more dodge potential, and then I can put the this ability that makes burst affinity more likely, and you, you just get really lost in the weeds because there's like a million trees, and it's kind of hard to keep track of in a way that's like kind of good because it feels like a puzzle Mm -hmm. whereas if you had everything laid out in front of you it would seem a little bit more it would seem daunting but probably easier i don't know yeah it's that monolith soft layering Mm -hmm. uh coming into to play there in full swing yeah yeah no there's a number of mechanics like that that take a while for you to kind of like fully warm up to man if i had known that the side quests button existed where you can just swap your radar your mini map into tracking main story or side quests uh i would have been doing more side quests a lot earlier than i did yep (sighs) lots of mechanics like that yeah a lot of those uh sorts of things are definitive edition add-ons mm-hmm Oh, yeah, I didn't even check that when we played. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you could not track the side quests like the UK. <laughs> Did, the, were the red exclamation points still there? Uh, only for certain things, <laughs> not for all quests. That's so... That makes it seem very hard to do these things. Oh, yeah. Yep. It was weird, like, when I played the Definitive Edition for the first time. Like, how much I was like, I feel like I'm just doing more side quests this time. And I thought it was just because I was taking more my time with it more. And I'm sure that it contributed, but I think it's mostly that they, they made a lot of quality of life improvements to that stuff. Yeah, I imagine what happened was they sat down and were like, let's, go, let's remaster the first Xenoblade, riding high on the success of Xenoblade 2. And they were like, well, we'll play through it again and see what we need to change. And they realized that their fucking phone browser, like mine, had 19 open tabs to the Xenoblade Chronicles wiki. And you're like, oh, shit, I, we should just put in arrows that point them to these obscure things. All yeah, over you had, like, a little quest arrow, like a classic mm-hmm. little compass thing up at the top. Nope, gotta get those dotted lines. Yep. Show you the path. And, like, I, I agree... With the people who are telling me through their headphones right now mm-hmm. that I should like when it doesn't tell you exactly where stuff is because there's more, like, satisfaction in discovering things for yourself. Mm-hmm. But the game would have to put in a lot more effort oh, yeah. to make that possible. It has to be designed for it. Mm-hmm. Like, if it doesn't give you any idea, especially when the items are just little blue balls, Yeah, like, <laughs> you have to go and pick up every single one till you found it. Uh, if it's, uh, it's something, you have to go pick up an item anyway, mm-hmm. which a lot of the quests are. Um, <laughs> sometimes it makes them red, if they're key items or whatever. Yeah, they go into a special pouch if they're uh, red. Yeah, but um, classic Andy thing. Um, this is an f- opinion that has been birthed out of the podcasts uh, <laughs> and been raised and coddled by me. Uh-huh. Uh, I recommend turning the mini-map off and just pulling up the map with the Y button uh, and uh, trying to do a little bit more navigation on your own, mm-hmm. but still being able to make use of the quest markers. Yeah. Because, like, the game is 
like has stellar art direction and the environments are great and cool and i i feel like if you can minimize your distraction in the amount that you're looking up in the corner at the little circle uh the better yeah i will normally my response to this is either i agree or I didn't know that you could turn the minimap off because it's just not a setting I'm used to looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this particular instance, I would like to chime in with my personal experience. Sure. Um, and uh, this was me on my second playthrough, and I used the minimap on my first one. Yeah. It, that makes a difference. Do do this when you're going through the game to play it and beat it. When you are at the point of the game, if you are like me, where you're prepared to spend another Xenoblade Chronicles length of time playing through side content, get that shit back on. Because it will yeah. it will extend it to three Xenoblade Chronicles lengths of time. Yeah, I won't disagree with that. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the instance where I would agree. Um, and, like, the, pulling up the map, like, the full map, Mm-hmm. Feels like it takes a long time. Well, it's because it has to load. Like we, we've. Oh, this is another opinion that I have a lot. Um, after we played Hollow Knight, where it's like a toggle. Yeah. Which I feel like every time I say it, I have to justify it real hard because I think when it's just words, that doesn't sound like a big difference. Mm-hmm. Like just toggling it up and then or in loading a menu and closing out of it. Yeah. But it it really makes a big difference in like usability. Uh. In a way that I just love, and I feel like all maps should be that way. Like, you just hold in, like, whatever button, and it pulls it up, and then you let go, and then it goes away. Yeah. There's also... And the, the way it does it in this is you, like, it puts, like, a transparent map over yeah. the screen. But, like, you still play right. while it's up. Like, something like that, I think, is so much better than loading a menu page with the map on it. Yeah, I agree. The, the left stick big map. The macro map, mm-hmm. coin that term. Send the macro. The macro. Mm, I don't know if I love that one. That sounds like a GPS device, which it kind of is. Yeah, that's appropriate. All right, yeah. we'll go map pro. Uh, is great because it it is just like a quick check. Like especially when you're looking for something in a particular zone, you're like, do I need to go around this like ridge? Or over this little hill. Or through this cave that I didn't notice. Yeah. yeah. You pull the map up and, and you can quickly see like where each of those paths is going to take you. Um, it is really useful in that way. Uh, especially given how large these maps are. But like, I talked about how some of the characters that I didn't enjoy playing as much included Melia. And I did feel like I understood how to use Melia. The reason that I didn't use Melia is because you had to start every single fight by playing out long summoning animations and it just felt really gross and bad yeah and opening the map every time like with the y button to mm-hmm. see the full map had a similar grading experience on me over time yeah no i i did it this time that way just yeah because i played the game before and like i just wanted to like John, I just wanted to try it out that way, like, because mm-hmm. uh, it's a thing these days where people are like, play Breath of the Wild with the, <laughs> the, all the waypoints turned off and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I was like, I'll try and, like, use the map less. Like, I won't just not use it. Like, I'll just try to make a conscious effort to, like, think and explore more actively and blah, blah, blah. And I ended up liking it that way. And it was just, like, muscle memory to, like, open it with Y, close it with two hits of the B button. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I made it work for me. <laughs> the uh, 
I also want to shout out that if you try to play this game without ever opening the map, uh, you're still playing the yeah. Wii version because you've <laughs> negated skip travel, uh, which is so important for this game uh, because of how much like just general location hopping you end up doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I got one of the achievements in the game uh, is called Lazy Bones. And you you get it for using skip travel some number of times, but it popped for me when I skip traveled from the stairs in Alchemoth mm. to the chapel in Alchemoth, <laughs> which is like a maybe 20 seconds of walking. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, bring on the skip travel, don't get across this very small expanse of land. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I had found like the secret achievement for bad game players i love that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. like i love cheeky achievements like that yeah we talked about this on the Ouija's mansion episode but like i think like putting in clever well that's not what it was but like i like i would put something well yeah that's something that uh i would put in a game Mm -hmm. like if you skip travel between two points that were really close together like i would call it out yeah or i would want to as a developer like, I always had this idea of, like, putting in something in the code that can sense if the player's just mashing through dialogue. And if they do it a certain amount, like, you put in an achievement that's called, like, pay attention or something. To right. just kind of, like, like, a meta thing. I think that kind of stuff is fun. It is the thing also that works, because if you're mashing on the button, then you're probably not paying attention. Yeah. Once and then that, it pops like, sound up. comes on, yeah. I just think that kind of stuff is fun. Mm-hmm. Uh... I don't know if I really want to talk about the achievements in this game, but I will say as somebody who got like 90% of them just sort of like by doing the things I was already doing, there are some cool ones. Yeah, this is, I I feel like I've played a couple other games like this, but like it just implements its own in-game achievement system and there's a comical number of them. Yeah, there's like hundreds. Yeah, to the point where they feel like, They've shot the moon and they kind of feel meaningless and not like achievements. <laughs> but uh, unlike an achievement that you get in Xbox 360 that comes up, makes yeah. a little bloop noise, and you get meaningless gamer score. Right, yeah. That does yeah. nothing. You do them just for the satisfaction of doing them. Yeah. In this game, they do give you experience. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and some of them quite a lot, and then other ones that seem like they should give you a lot don't give you jack shit, so... Yeah, and also discovering locations gives you experience, which is a decision that I love, because I don't know why, it just always gets me really jacked <laughs> if I level up from discovering a new location. Uh-huh. That's always, I don't know, it just always feels really good. Ricky inexplicably has a skill that just increases the amount of... uh uh, XP you get for finding locations. It's because the Nopon are nomadic. I mean, okay, inexplicably may have been the wrong word. <laughs> it is thematically appropriate and is good, but it's such like a wild skill to have because it just it has a limited number of times it would ever be applicable. Yeah, but I I feel like that's um, and we can use this to transition to a, a break. Um, I feel like this game has stuff like that in it because it thinks of its characters as characters and in not just as like a means to deliver gameplay mechanics. That's true. And but they mesh them together like with the mechanics yeah, yeah, in yeah. a way that that like sells the thematic points they're trying to make. Exactly. 
much like on a podcast when you do a, a you talk a lot about mechanics and then you go to talk about narrative but because we aren't masters of the craft of the ludo narrative <laughs> uh we do put a break in the middle so we do want to talk about that theme but we should do it after, after the, the break, break. also man and the masters of the ludo narrative <laughs> I have the power! And it's justified by this! A vision. A vision. A vision. I see us coming back to the podcast. Welcome back. The future isn't changing. <laughs> uh, what are we going to get into now? Uh, uh, you want to talk about the story, the characters, the, the enemies? The stories and the I characters. I see your, uh, your notebook open there. Yeah, I do. I mean, we could just run through this real quick. The very end of the first half, we did talk a bit about um, the skill link system. And the other way of getting... Uh, skill points, which are called affinity coins in this game, uh, which determine how many skills you can uh, like have active at a time. You get one for leveling up, and then you also get one every time that you defeat a unique monster. Um, and I do want to talk about the enemies, actually, because I think mm-hmm. that they do a really interesting thing as far as generating variety with a limited number of like resources. Um, but one of the types of enemy that you can encounter is called a unique monster. And the unique monsters uh, are essentially versions of existing monsters with like higher stats or unique movesets. Uh, and you find them in a million different varieties throughout the game, ranging from, like, I think the first one you fight in the game is legitimately just called unusual clone brog which is just a brog which is a frog and it just has like a slightly higher it's like a higher level it has like more hp deals more damage that kind of thing and Mm -hmm. that that persists throughout the game like a mini boss kind of a thing exactly yeah and uh they are i mean they're a unique challenge in some ways in that like if you fight them at an appropriate level, they are a lot harder than regular ones and they're placed really specifically. So like if you get into a fight with a certain one, there might be other things around that are likely to get sucked into the fight as well, which makes it a little bit harder. Um, all the way up to the end game. Super bosses are all considered, um, unique monsters as well and give you those infinity coins. Yeah, my favorite ones are ones that, like, have little implied, like, maybe not narratives, but, like, um, there's this one that in the marsh where it's, like a, like, a castle, like an old ruined castle, and you fight your way up around it. There's all these lizard guards, mm-hmm. and you get in there, and there's, like, a lizard king, <laughs> and, you know, and, like, you can have to, or at least I did, draw all of his guards out and fight them before you go in and fight him. Uh, and I just think that's really cool. Like it, like some of the enemies are implied to be more intelligent, and they'll mm-hmm. have little settlements. Like the Turkins are also like that, and there are some unique uh, 
Turkin monsters as well. Yeah, there's like a general, and like a lot of the time they'll be like the focus of a quest. Yeah. Where it'll be like, oh, go fight and kill this thing, and they'll explain like what that thing did. This yeah. is the one, this is the monster that killed my friend. This is the monster that is like amassing an army or whatever. Yeah, and I like that there's enough of them that like you'll find some of them through quests, and it'll be cool to have the context of like a story to go with it but it's also cool to just find stuff like that yeah so you get like there's enough of them that you get a nice mix of that stuff yeah and it's an interesting reward structure as well considering like most of the time if you find a secret area your reward is usually like a heart to heart or some blue balls that you pick up uh or a heart to heart that gives you some blue balls am i right boys uh Got him. Got him. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, but then on occasion you'll stumble into a secret area and it'll just have a unique monster in it. Uh, and it's a cool reward because one, it's interesting. Two, it's more unique than finding another type of reward. And three, they give you the affinity coin so you get a bit of like a mechanical boost. Uh, and you get the affinity coin only on the first time that you kill them. This is your disclaimer. You can't mm-hmm. farm one of them uh, for more affinity coins because that would make parts of the game too easy. But, and this is why we're talking about this right at this very second. Uh-huh. Uh, I love the fact that the unique monsters all have unique names. And there's like a hundred and... 50 of them or something there's a shitload of of them in total um and when you have to name 150 things you get a little you run a little thin maybe (laughs) mayhaps it feels somewhat intentional and somewhat like a joke to me it's hard to tell what the intent is yeah but i've written down some of the names of my favorite uh, of them. The the really amusing thing, and you'll see this as a theme in the ones that I'm writing down, are they often will just have, like, a regular name. Like, a person's name. Uh, and you have to wonder. Like, there's a lot about it where it's like, is this saying something about a person? Is this... Did the person... Did somebody name them? Did they name themselves? Where did this name come from? A lot of the, like... Oh, like, in-universe? Yeah. Okay, yeah. A lot of the stuff in the Collectopedia, your collectibles, it attributes who named them to Mm. them. So, like, there's an item you can pick up that's just called, like, Ha Ha Ha, and it's like, Ricky named this. I was like, I don't know if Ricky named that. Ricky just laughed at it, and you called it that. (laughs) Right. Uh, But that's sort of the vibe I get from a lot of these. So I'm just going to go down a list here, and uh, if I find it relevant, I'll say a few notes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have Affluent Belleth, which I just liked because of the choice of affluent as their adjective here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have uh, the the ever-popular Immovable Gonzalez, uh, who stands in front of Spiral Mountain, whatever, in... uh, on the Bionis leg, and you'll see him like a hundred times, and he's just like basically. Because it's like a warp point. Yeah, and yeah, you pop in like right in front of him, uh, and he's unkillable for you for the most of the game. I think he spawns in at level like ninety one or something. Right. Uh, and it's it's just hysterical to see him every time, and satisfying when you finally can murder his ass. 
Uh, we have Despotic Arsene, uh, which I put on here as uh, the only super boss in the list. But it's just such a comically dramatic name when the enemy itself is a rabbit. Like, it's one of the bunnets mm-hmm. uh, with just a big stick. And he hops around and looks no different than the ones around him. But he is over the level cap and will just smash your brains out if you run into him. Uh, this is a subset of ones that I love, uh, which is we have experienced Tristan and mild Florence, which are both uh, Mechon. So these are names of big robots. <laughs> Experienced Tristan is especially funny to me. It's extremely good. And uh, I I wrote as like a little side note here, Experienced Tristan is a mechon. However, there is one named Shadeless Matrix, and that's a a Vang, which is a bat. Mm -hmm. So they gave the really robotic sounding name to one that is a, a, a naturally occurring animal. Yeah, I think, like, it's because with Florence, you can almost imagine that it's, like, a near thing, and that's, like, a name of a philosopher or something. Right. But Tristan just is, like, also like, I didn't... I've known someone named Tristan, you know, it's just, like, a regular-ass name. It's a super regular name. I also do, I, get, I didn't think about this until just now, but also Florence and the Machine is an indie uh... band, and maybe they were going for that. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, we also have fl- uh, flabbergasted Jerome and gentle Rodriguez as just being great. <laughs> Those are the two ones. best ones. Yeah. <laughs> flabbergasted Jerome <laughs> was the one that tipped me off to this because you get this quest really early on the Bionis leg, uh, and if I if I remember correctly, it's just one of the Nebula enemies. <laughs> So flabbergasted Jerome is in fact a creature that shows that cannot show emotion mm-hmm. because it is a cloud of gas. <laughs> uh, so that's my bit on unique monster names and why I love them. Mm-hmm. No, it's a good call out. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a big, big fan of them. Uh, it did make me think of something else mechanical that I think that we'll probably have a time and a place to come back to it. So mm-hmm. let's move forward from them. Uh, I, I did say that I wanted to talk about the enemies a little bit. So yeah, um, a lot of the things that you fight in this game are not directly antagonistic forces. Uh, you fight like metal face who <laughs> is a big robot that specifically wants to kill you. Right. Um, uh, and Mechon generally. Yeah, the Mechon are hostile to you. Yeah. But also a lot of the things that, that you fight and that fight you are just like a cow and a rabbit and a lizard. Uh-huh. There's a lot of naturally occurring monsters. And this isn't like uncommon to RPGs, but I do find it interesting that it makes up such a bulk of what you end up fighting as you go through an area. Yeah, no, it's surprising um, early on it's uh the mechon are established as like the imposing force and then you leave after the mechon attack on colony nine you leave and you mostly just fight monsters Mm -hmm. 
uh, and it kind of flip flops back and forth. And then it, once you get to like the marsh, you go like a really long time without seeing like any mechon, and it stands out. It's like it lampshades itself. Yeah, where it's like all all you are fighting right now are birds and wolves. Yep, for a long time, uh, especially going into uh, Frontier Village and Magna Forest, where you really don't ever encounter mecha no yeah yeah yeah. the marsh the forest and the ether sea well the ether sea does have some of them yeah eventually but like there's yeah a really long stretch without any um and well and another thing um when you get to what is it alchemoth is that the high antia city yeah um when you go there uh you fight uh this group of like high antia like sleeper cells i don't know what they are like secret agents in these masks yeah and i think it's a really cool moment because you're fighting people and the monado doesn't work on them right so like on my first playthrough of the game like i forgot that because it's established at the beginning of the game um and just lost the fight the first time and then had to like switch out shulk for like dunban or somebody and then was able to do the fight. And I feel like the game could have done stuff like that more. Like where you needed to switch Shulk out of the party. I agree like a million percent with that. I think there's lots of incentive to keep Shulk in the party. And not a ton of incentive to switch him out. And having that... I think cause I think what yeah, they wanted like... to avoid mm-hmm. is you having to be ambushed by somebody and lose and then go back and then have to go into a menu and change stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I think it would have been worth it to, to like enforce some level of experimentation, especially in areas where there aren't mech on where Shulk isn't necessary. What you might do is switch in a different character and end up liking it and keeping them around and keeping Shulk benched. Yeah. Like if the Monado, like it could have, you could have tied it into story stuff like earlier on in the game, like the Monado isn't as effective against organic life or something Mm -hmm. to like give you incentive to like switch them out like you wouldn't have to take the ability to uh, like fight things like away from him completely but you could like essentially just like debuff him against non-mechon or something right i mean like and he could stand it honestly like he's very strong against more or less every enemy except for those that are that are human people. Mm-hmm. I also, and it didn't occur to me, and I think this may be after the point in the game where the revelation becomes apparent. I won't say that it was necessarily explicitly told to you that the faced mechons are immune to the Monado because they have a human component to them. Yep. And these are humans who are immune to the Monado because they are humans and are wearing masks which visually call back to the face on the mechons that that you can't hurt. Right. Which I think is pretty clever. Like, pretty actually really good writing, in a way. No, yeah, this game has got a handful of twists, and I think they're all pretty effectively done. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, now that's the one that stands out in my memory the most, I think, is that, yeah, the faced mechon are are people, Mm -hmm. have people inside (laughs) them, uh... I know, like, I feel like you already had it spoiled for you because you knew that Mumcar was Metal Face. Yeah, thanks to Smash Brothers. Yeah, but, like, that that was, like, it's one of the more memorable things from my first playthrough. Like, there's some great 
like it's great foreshadowing for it. The fact that he has like the claws, like Momcar's like claw weapons, and mm-hmm. he's got a. You can kind of tell it's the same voice actor, but you might not read into that. Uh, so I, I and he, the way he like as soon as Dunban shows up, he like antagonizes him specifically. So like there's there's clues in there, and I think it's just it's really well done because uh, they do that thing where like the context makes you like maybe not realize it, right? Well, especially in uh, the Assault on Colony 9 sequence where, like, you would have been introduced to Mumkar an hour ago. Yeah. Like, not that long ago in the context of the game. And they do a really good job, I think, of making it seem like a unique threat. Like, I don't think that my suspicions would have been raised in that first sequence. And he uses a lot of his, like signature shit he has the same tone of voice uh it's not like he it's not like one of those things where they don't want to give it away so they take away the personality of the villain Mm -hmm. he still has his personality it's actually they do a really clever thing where they actually amp it up yeah because he has all this power now Mm -hmm. so like he does kind of act similarly but it's like more yeah like i feel like (laughs) you don't you don't make the connection like there's nothing there really to like bridge it mm-hmm. so it, like it ends up working really well and you just think of metal face as his own thing yeah i will say that smash brothers did me a disservice by my <laughs> having me know about Mumkar, uh-huh. but it also led me to believe that metal face was like the final boss oh yeah so like i had no idea what was going on and honestly when i got to the scene with with zanza in the who's like shackled because he's a giant Mm -hmm. uh i was like they could have just rolled credits here (laughs) and like had the rest of this game be xenoblade 2 Uh uh-huh but like monolisoft wouldn't stand for having a game that was only 30 to 40 hours long Uh uh-huh so it went on for quite a bit longer and you even later than that end up killing metal face and like yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, my initial prediction which was 10 10 chapters on bionis five chapters on Mm. uh mech ended up actually being right but there's just more chapters tacked on at the end that are back on Bionis, right and the mechon chapters take a very long time uh so it was it was weird that's how i thought it would play out and i then thought that it was ending a lot sooner than it was and then i thought it was not ending for a long time <laughs> it really did the pace of the story did not keep me it did not it kept me guessing in a way that I did like in the end. Yeah, no, especially, like, I don't know if you would have remembered it at all. If you watch, like, Shulk's reveal trailer for Smash Brothers, Metal Face pops up at the end, because he's in the stage. Yeah. It says something about Monado Boy, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, so, like, that even more, like, kind of sets him up to be, like, the villain mm-hmm. of the game. It's kind of like a like a Kingdom Hearts thing with, like, Maleficent is set up to be the villain and then she isn't. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, um, I feel like you, like, you sprinkled in several breadcrumbs and I could go in several different directions here. Do That's we want to backpedal a bit? And uh, talk more about, like, the characters, like, talk about Fiora at the beginning. Yeah. That's, like, that's also related to narrative twists. Um, So I think this is another really effective twist that they do, is that 
Fiora is set up to be a party member. Like, she has items in the shop. She has, like, a, a unique play style, like, her own arts and stuff. And you take her with you on the first little quest that you do mm-hmm. to go to get the ether canisters or whatever. Yeah. And then, like, 20 minutes later, she gets killed in a cutscene. <laughs> And so it's like it. I think it really pulls the wool over your eyes there, and like you're not expecting her to die, and that. And I think that the fact that they do, they they did put in that effort to make it seem like she was gonna be, you know, in the game with all of her armor and weapons and stuff in the shop, really makes it feel like it's gonna stick, like that because it really emphasizes the weight of the loss and makes you feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when she ends up being alive at the end, it makes that twist work really well, too. Yeah. I had heard through many, many sources that there was a seventh party member. And not only that, but a lot of the people who talked about the seventh party member mechanically always were like, they can kind of do whatever you want. They can be the DPS, they could be a tank. Like they, they're malleable. Mm -hmm. And so in my head, I have like a list of (laughs) possible characters that, that the last party member could be including like a wholly new robot character. And that's why they're so customizable Mm because they have like defense mode or whatever. And Bjorn is on that list. She's like, number three or four on the list somewhere in there and i never really crossed her off as being Mm. a potential like returning character but it was not at the top of the list Mm -hmm. it wasn't one that i came back to a lot uh and they put so much time in between that i think the twist really works oh Uh, yeah yeah like it, you know, it totally worked on me. Like I'd never even considered it. Mm. Um, I think especially they throw in Melia. Um, she's the last, second to last party member you get. Yeah. Um, the last one before Fiora, um, and they set up like this little like romance, like like uh, that Melia has a crush on Shulk, and I think that's to even further throw you off the trail before they do the reveal of Fiora being alive, and it. I think it's really effective for that, but I do think it ends up shafting Melia. <laughs> Pretty bad, yeah. So, you know, like, they <laughs> they, they wagered that there, and you can, uh, depending on your uh, your tastes uh, and how much you like Melia or don't like her, uh, whether or not it was worth it, but uh, it works for that twist really well, because I think it does throw you off. Yeah, it throws you off the scent a bit. Yeah. Especially considering how quickly afterward it it comes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they even like involve Sharla in it. Like they have a scene where like she ta- they talk to each other about it, and it's I don't know, just feels like it's gonna be a whole thing, and then it's not. Yeah, surprise Fiora. <laughs> it's actually a really common uh, sequence in all of the heart to hearts that Melly is a part of. Not obviously all of them, all of them, but like when she talks to Sharla, when she talks to Dunban. Uh, she has sort of like a, there's like a confidant relationship between those characters where she talks a bit more about how... Because they're the older ones. Yeah, like her feelings with... Well, they're all younger than Melia. This well, is another thing that I'll get into. Because she's half high Antia. Yeah. Is like, 
this this love triangle that's like developing even after Fiora shows up. Mm-hmm. In fact, only after because otherwise it's a love line, which it's, is a different. It's thing. not acknowledged <laughs> by the story, though. No, it's only acknowledged in this like supplemental content. Yeah, right. And I love everything that they do narratively, thematically, to combine with the mechanics with Fiora. I think that having her as a playable character at the very beginning and then killing her is great because it does set up that expectation and makes the loss feel a lot more substantial, especially given that you then go a very long time with, with just Ryan and Shulk. Yep. Um, I like that when she comes back at the, at the end as the new character with a new body and a new skill set. Mm-hmm, and she's part mech on. Yeah. Which, which makes her like incompatible with the gear and stuff that you've already collected, which means that choosing Fiora, which seems like the way that the narrative and Shulk would be pushing toward, is kind of difficult. It's like a challenge to actually get over, because um, you have to find new stuff for her and make new shit and make sure that she's up to speed with everybody else. Um, and I like that as like a thematic mirroring of like now we have Fiora back, but she's new and different. And she seems like she just wants to die. <laughs> yep. Uh, and so there's a lot of that going on. I hate all of this stuff that they tried to do with Melia. And I don't... It just feels like it shit the bed so hard. Because, like, even if you like playing as Melia, which, like, more power to you, I've heard she's mm-hmm. very good, she does not mesh in the party. You de- You would never put Shulk and Melia together if you're trying to build, like, a balanced team composition. So their affinity's never very high. You never get to see their heart-to-hearts. It feels like a really one-sided Melia-only theme. Yeah, that's a good point, is, yeah, they don't have any uh, synergy mechanically. Like, that would have helped. And, like, it, yeah, the pacing of the story, like, it does feel like they needed more time to develop a relationship before Fiora comes back. Cause like, even if they want to, I mean, if they want to do that love triangle, like go for it and actually like make you feel like you're pulled in two directions. Yeah. Uh, which it just doesn't really happen here. Not at all. Like, especially for the character, like you might like Melia, but like Shulk and Fiora are like childhood sweethearts and there's no other choice for him once she's still alive. Yeah. I do want to shout down the opposite of a shout out. I would like to hate on uh, Fiora as a character because she is awful. And it, like, I love playing as Fiora and I like the things that they did mechanically with Fiora to make her story work mm-hmm. in the systems. I do not like that Fiora is just the most like broken, subservient robot woman. Uh, she is like a Stepford wife. She's like the proto Stepford wife, where she's like, I just want to make Shulk happy. I want all this to. I want to fight as hard as I can, so that I can get over all this stuff, and we can just go back to me making sandwiches for Shulk, who doesn't appreciate them and never says that they're delicious, uh, which is brought up multiple times for some reason. And uh, if at the end of all this, I'm dead, but Shulk is safe, then everything is exactly as I want them to be. And it just sucks to hear that from a character. And I realize how anime a lot of this stuff is. 
Yeah, it's definitely cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm an ignorant American, so <laughs> take anything that I say with a, a pile of salt. But um, yeah, it's just their like attitude. From what I understand, like attitudes on like sex and relationships and things are very like there's like they're they're in a, they have a very like formal and like uh tradition and like expectation uh driven society it puts a lot of pressure on people to like act and behave a certain way mm-hmm. and that kind of like subservient housewife thing <laughs> uh definitely still has a, a foothold over there in that kind of way yeah, and I mean, I, I, or like honestly, here as well, there's like a certain. Uh, it just man, the way it manifests in media is just very different. Yeah, and it's especially strange in the context of this type of story, where like there's a lot going on here, where you don't the things that they are worrying about seem very dwarfed in comparison to the godlike sort of entities that they're dealing with yeah that's a classic jrpg thing 100 percent. but what it does though is it makes melia seem like a much more fucking balanced and rational person in comparison uh which furthers the sort of like awkwardness of them not ever really giving you a choice and though that's a good way to frame it it does feel like it's setting it up for there to be a choice for the player Mm -hmm. uh but there, it, it there isn't. Yeah, I mean, it, for all intents and purposes, Fiora is the C Catherine choice, uh, or the K. I don't even remember at this point which one was which. C Catherine is the way it is on the box, so it's the blonde, sexy. It's one. the blonde one, yeah. And K Catherine's the more normal, uh, responsible adult, one. right? Who is Melia? Okay, who yeah. has a job and yeah. like a responsibility and does things, and it it feels like the in Catherine, see Catherine choice is the chaos choice. <laughs> yeah, it's the one that they don't <laughs> in, expect you. They, it's the one that they expect you to pick so that they can like fucking flip s- things on you exactly. But Fiora just seems like that's what they want to go with. Yeah, and I, I brought it up on the first half in some way or another, but uh, <laughs> I feel like they probably do have some lingering regrets on how they handled Melia, and that's why she's featured in the expansion. Yeah, and I like that they gave her more of a character. Yeah. I didn't use her very much. No, I tried. <laughs> I tried so hard and got so far, but mm. in the end it didn't really matter. Um, but... I don't know if I just don't remember it because I played it when it came out and have not replayed it. Um, mm. But do they go into the romance stuff in that at all, or do they just not acknowledge it? Yeah, it's basically like it didn't exist. Uh, that's ever. a missed opportunity. I agree for them to like talk about it. I think that there is some like subtext uh, at the beginning because, uh, like, yeah, they, they're alone. Like, you could have some good romantic tension there. Yeah. Especially, like, the fucking rom-com setup that it has going on, where it has, like, Shulk the oblivious dude, Melia the, the mature, mature brooding uh, female counterpart, and then if you were to mash uh, M- uh, Nene and... Oh, God. 
I don't know why. Kino. Kino, yep. If you mash Nene and Kino together, they would relatively come up with one composite Jason Alexander <laughs> to be the funny friend who provides comic relief. Yeah. Like, they have it, it, it set also, up. It also just has that, like, uh, it's uh, the Oblivious Shulk and the... Uh, <laughs> level-headed Melia, and mm-hmm. now they have to raise these two kids. <laughs> it does have that vibe to it. Uh-huh, and I maybe th- they'll end up falling in love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they don't, of course. Like, you could do, like, somebody edits together, like, a sitcom-style opening credit sequence <laughs> from the cutscenes in that. I mean, you got a, you have a wealth YouTube has already proven that you have a wealth of dialogue choices to mash together into a YouTube poop style mm-hmm. uh, trailer for this. So this is doable for sure. It's all there. Uh, but yeah, so we, we we talked about some of the twists and we jumped all the way ahead to the expansion and stuff. But um. I, I, I replayed, like, the first third of this in preparation, because I've already played it twice. Shot, like, to me? Yeah. Shockingly quickly. Because when, I'm in my mindset. Yeah, because, like, it's your first time through, there's so much being thrown at you, and it feels like the first part of the game is really long. Mm-hmm. But you'd be shocked if you went back and replayed it, like, how fast you would progress through. Um yeah, it's like you could get you can get to buy on his leg like in like a couple of hours. Yeah. Um but um so I, yeah, anyway, I was replaying it um and there were just some things and it made me think of Final Fantasy 10 um how there were things that they felt like they were setting up at the beginning that just kind of get dropped. And I feel like that's just a thing if you have a story this long. Yeah. Uh, they weren't as significant, but things that stood out to me. Uh at the beginning Dunban can use the Monado, yes. and that seems like a really significant detail, and it <laughs> never comes back up or is, like, a thing in the story or explained, like, why he can use it. Yeah. I thought that was weird. Or there's never, like, a sequence where, like, something happens to Shulk and, like, Dunban has to use it again or, like, something. It's it's similar to the the Melia romance thing where I feel like it gets teased a couple of times like it might happen. Yeah, it's but like it's never a payoff. Yeah, it does kind of feel like cut content or like you know, story content. Um, I feel something. like he should like in the weapon choice screen uh, at the end of the game when you get a replica Monado and can gather materials to make five other ones. He I feel like get one. I feel like yeah, they should be selectable. They don't have to change mechanically. Just port the numbers over. Uh, and just let him use the Monados as well, because, like, he can do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that's the biggest one. I just thought that that I'd never thought about it before, and this time I was like, wait a minute. Uh, this I, seems really important. I mean, not to stick on romantic subplots for too long, but just, like, to add one to the list, the Ryan and Charlotte oh, thing. That, I love their r- romance. But it never, there's not, there's never a conclusion to it. No, like, I think at the end, like, I, I like that about it as well. Like, I, like, the way it's handled, um, to come back to, like, the anime comparisons. Sure. Um, you see this a lot, like, the, the Shulk and Fiora thing, it's just, like, love at first sight or like their childhood sweethearts or like mm. they were destined to be together kind of thing. You see that with the protagonist in a love interest a lot in anime. 
and like the Shulk or Jesus, the Ryan and Charla. Well, the romance. Ryan and Shulk romance is extremely real. And the rad romance, path. yeah, yeah. I, dude, if you want to ship them, I, I, uh, I support <laughs> that because they are cute together. Uh-huh. Um, but the the Charla Ryan romance, I just feels like the opposite of that, where it feels realistic. Mm. Uh, like because Charla has uh, a fiance. Uh, Gatto, who ends up dying. Like, you're pretty sure from the beginning he's already dead, or at least I was. Uh, but he ends up being alive, and he makes the noble sacrifice, etc. Yeah. Uh, later on, leaving the door open for their romance uh, in the future. And I love the way, like, because Ryan is, like, the immature hothead. Uh, like, yeah, he's the tank, and he's characterized as, like, being like kind of like the jock. Yeah. Uh, and I like the way he's, like, surprisingly mature about it. Like, he doesn't want to, ad- like, make advances on her, even though he clearly likes her, and she likes him, too. Um, I don't know. I just... It feels real. Right. Like, in the way that you don't see in, like, this kind of a story as much. There's, like, a warming up between the characters yeah, that happens. Yeah, and it feels natural. Yeah. I And I don't begrudge it that... I just think that having... Um, Gatto, fuck Gatto, Gatto, yeah, die in such a dramatic way feels like it is setting up for an explicit like at the end of the game it'll do like the year forward thing. Oh, and then they're like married or something. They have like they have like kids, Mm -hmm. and it's just it doesn't happen as far as you know. They're still in like a will they won't they sort of relationship. I think they do leave it off like that, but um. I think the significance of Gatto's death, like you said, it's a very grandiose thing. Like, you would need time Mm -hmm. to cope with that. And that's why I I like it, is that, like, Ryan... Like, I think it comes through in his character that he, like, realizes that. Yeah. And and I think the way that last scene, the way they leave it off, where they're just all fishing while, like, uh, Shulk and Fiora... um, or having their conversation. Like, I don't I feel like there's some implied, like, the way, like, Ryan is with Juju and stuff, and, like, he, are, he like, kind of assumes that parental role naturally mm-hmm. without really trying. Like, I feel like definitely in the expanded canon of Xenoblade, <laughs> like, Ryan and Charlotte do end up together, for sure. Yeah. So, like, I like that it leaves it open. Like, you don't, I don't feel like you don't need to tie the bow, and I think it works as, like, a realistically depicted relationship. I'm just saying that people have... I mean, I won't begrudge you for wanting the closure. I'm saying people have conversations in the real world about how people take a long time to get engaged. It's like a common joke. But if I had had a friend (laughs) who took longer to get engaged than it took for someone to figure out how to make a new human body for me... (laughs) Then I would probably start questioning the validity of that relationship. Uh, <laughs> we can we can move. I, I want to talk about the other characters as well. Sure, so. sure. Yeah, my only other uh, thing that I wanted to bring up before we get on that fucking tangent uh-huh. uh, um, was there's also a thing they bring up about scraps of mechons falling from the sky to Colony Nine. And it's just completely dropped too. Like that seemed like it was set up to be like a game mechanic, right? Like, um, like the fact that like Shulk is a like tinkerer or like a mechanic, and like like 
finding scraps and like building stuff with them seemed like it, it maybe was a mechanic in the early stages and it gets dropped. Yeah. Uh, Cause like you do find some scrap piles uh, on the bionis leg, but then after that, it's just like not a thing. Yeah. So those two things stood out to me and I just wanted to shout them out. Yeah, I agree. It, Cause it read to me like it was an explanation of why there were just little circles everywhere that sure. you pick up. Yeah. But then like, most of the things you pick up are like fruits, mm-hmm. like maybe a bug. Yeah, and like I liked the like it also felt like set up for like world building stuff that you don't really see much more of. Is the crabble is like the first enemy you're introduced to. Yeah, it's like a crab is made a shell out of a robot part. Right, it's like that just seems like a cool world building thing that would happen in this world, and it felt like they were gonna like have more creative like ways people have integrated the like technology into their everyday lives. Yeah. But they don't really do that as much either. Yeah. This is like a weird, um, Oh no, there's, I'm trying to think there's a show or a movie that I watched either recently or a long time ago. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> that I've watched in my lifetime. You're painting such a vivid picture for me. Thank you. Uh, that also has a very, like... It's like a society that had... Oh, yeah, it was Final Fantasy X. Uh, yep. Yeah. Final Fantasy X sets itself in this universe that has a really rocky relationship with technology because they associate it with the the past mm-hmm. where and it's like um the religion like kind of demonizes it yeah and this game has which did give me final fantasy 10 vibes yes mm-hmm. has a similar thing going on because the technology is primarily of the mechanis yeah and like there's also like a cool tone to it at the beginning as well like like the um the ether facility mine that you go through yeah they talk about how it's just always been there and they don't know where it came from and like there's this like tone of like there was something here before them but they mm-hmm. don't know what it is which also doesn't really come up as much as you would expect yeah it's like a lot of this stuff i feel like could be like you said in the first half of this podcast so mm-hmm. a very long time ago <laughs> in the before time yeah they did a lot of streamlining with the narrative. And I feel like there is a rich vein here that, I mean, I haven't played Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and don't know what it's the not narrative... relevant. Okay, I didn't figure it was. Um, of just, like, history to the place. Mm-hmm. Like, we didn't... We, I'm sure that when we talk about aesthetics uh, closer to the end, this mm-hmm. will come up in a more grandiose way. But the Mechon, or the Mechonis and the Bionis are an insane setting, like a batshit setting. Uh, and that just feels like it's ripe for all this shit that doesn't really get plumbed. Yeah, it just gets hinted at. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know. I, I And I think it's cool to some extent, because like, I'm the kind of person who liked playing Skyrim and just walking into a cave and going like, look at this cool cave. <laughs> maybe there's something in there that means something, maybe there isn't, but the implication that there is something at all is enough to sort of get my motor running. Yeah, it just it depends on the the presentation. Uh yeah, like the goals. Like a JRPG you expect explanations for stuff like that. Yeah. Much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like I'm not putting the Bionis on the same level as Timefall. 
Right. Where yeah. it feels like a missed opportunity because we, lest you forget, it does swing a sword the size of like the planet Earth at something. Yeah. So uh, there's that. Yeah, and it's like it is. You said that yeah, like it is streamlined, like we were talking about before. But it's not like it's streamlined in the same way as Final Fantasy X, where it feels like they've stripped a lot out. Mm-hmm. Um, in like to get like a more like compact, smooth, uh narrative experience it's just there's it's like a simplified like way of telling the story mm-hmm. that's not as complicated there's still a ton of stuff in there and i sympathize that they have to like cut stuff um because i definitely like i feel like monolith is a developer i really relate to and like their ambition and creativity with the game world so i'm sure they probably feel these uh missed opportunities a lot yeah. heavier on on their shoulders. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna I will make this as fast as humanly possible. Yes. Uh, but Melia is 88, and that is a problem with how this game <laughs> treats Melia. Uh, yeah, but there's this like implied. I mean, I'm gonna say dog years, even that's not a good thing to say. Uh, but like, uh, time scale is different for her. Yeah, because she's a uh, half Hyantia, half Homs. Which we haven't used that word yet because it's stupid. It is pretty bad. Uh, but humans are called Homs in this game. I spent so much fucking time in Frontier Village in this game that I just kind of started to assimilate Hom Homs as being the actual <laughs> name. For... <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, but I only bring it up because there are like many, many, many instances where they where Sharla is coded as being like the older woman, mm-hmm. and she's twenty one. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing is that she is older than Melia like in certain ways like you know because like obviously like we said Melia's mature and this and that but like she's, she's still she's a princess and she she is a is an empress she's an empress I guess like a pre-empress is still a princess yeah she gets she is empressed I don't know what the term is coronated coronated at yeah. the end of the DLC right um but uh she is still like a, she is still a teenager essentially like for her species or mm-hmm. race or whatever. Um, so it's that's what it's going for. But it is weird when you see that number yeah. in the menu that she's 88 years old. Because she's, she's the oldest member So that's basically the like 18 Yeah, is basically what that translates to. Fiora, Ryan, Shelf, Girl, 18. Charlotte's 21. Dunban's 30. Ricky is 40. Right. Uh, and they play that off as a joke. They're like, wow, you're a lot older than I expected yeah, because you're like kids. a small, cute dude yeah. because that's the way that your species is. That's the way Melia's species is. <laughs> yeah, and and they don't make any reference to it. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. I just, I had to say it or else my head would have exploded. No, that's that's totally fair. Um, I don't know. It's just one of those details that like, I'm so far in the weeds that I've like forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but just one other random thing. I have like, uh, two little factoids that I have here and one's related to the music, which we can talk about uh, after this. Perfect. But, um, so there's this video game podcast I listen to called Resonant Arc and they've recently been talking about, um, Xenogears and how it has a lot of influence from like philosophy and, um, Gnosticism. Okay. Um, it's something that uh, the developer of this is really into. Like him and his wife both wrote the story of Xenogears together, and I don't know if she is involved with this uh, with Xenoblade at all. But um, so, and one thing that they brought up is like 
the idea of God, like they think of it differently in Gnosticism. So it's not like a Christian God, but it's more of like a, it, it's um, called the monad. And it's uh, Greek for singularity. Man, so, what an interesting... Yeah, and then he was like, Xenoblade fans will probably recognize that that's where the Monado gets its name from. Right. Um, and um, in some Gnostic traditions, like, the monad is creates aeons, um, and one of those is Jesus. Oh, of course. And um, he's the one who, like, gives enlightenment to humanity in, in you know, in that tradition, and so that idea of, like, the Monado is what, like, lets Shulk see the visions and what ends up letting him overthrow and decide that the world is better off without gods is, like, a very Gnostic yeah. story thing, inspiration. So I just wanted to bring that up because it was a tidbit that I learned recently. What is neat, for a lot of reasons, there's a ton of, of like biblical reference in jrpgs overall yeah and if you're interested in it at all apparently like totally go play xenogears because it's like dripping with it yeah but i love the justification that this like reading gives to the story of xenoblade where we talked about it being streamlined but it does feature a lot of the hallmarks of jrpg storytelling mm -hmm. including the final fight with a big god which is just a thing that you do yeah um but having that information in the back of your head makes it feel a lot more justified where this is sort of like oh it's definitely it's not supposed to be like a christian reading at all oh yeah no absolutely it would be very odd if it was yeah just whenever you talk about the idea like it's so common in JRPGs to, like, kill God. I think uh -huh. people, at least in the back of their head, have, like, that Christian idea in their head. Yeah. That, like, it's, like, an atheist or, like, kind of <laughs> motivated thing. Yeah, or just, like, nihilistic. Yeah. Like, this is, and it's not that, at least usually, anyway. Yeah, JRPGs, there's a Venn diagram. On, on one side is JRPGs, and on the other side is Garth Ennis's Preacher. And <laughs> they overlap in, like, a one pixel, and it's Kill God. But Garth Ennis is, it's, they're so different because it's when like you kill, do interpret kill it. Kill capital G God. Right. Versus. Yeah, yeah. this God. A, a God. Mm -hmm. The, the, the. The kill the Christian God version of this story reads much more, like I said, nihilistic. It reads very, like, sardonic or just, like, angry in a way. And, like, it can be done well. I think Preacher is done well. Uh, but JRPGs are more like they need something of an epic scale, and a creator of things usually is mm -hmm. that. Uh but I like the application of religious reading that just isn't the Christian God one. Yeah. Because that gives, there's too much specific imagery to make oh, yeah, that story yeah, yeah. work. <laughs> it just, yeah, like, at least, yeah, like in the States, like we're very used to the Western idea of religion. Yeah. And it's, yeah, Eastern religions are, think of that stuff a lot differently. But no, that's very cool. And I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that soundtrack slaps. <laughs> I get down on my knees and worship that soundtrack. Hell yeah. my god. Uh, we've, we've done this multiple times where we play a game that has like a killer soundtrack, and we'll be like, that soundtrack slapped, it kicked ass, whatever, all this stuff. It's very good. Xenoblade soundtrack, and I've been trying to sort of put 
like what is the one word description and finally maybe for the first time in 20 years i can unironically just legitimately be like this soundtrack fucking rocks (laughs) (laughs) yeah they use like the instrumentation is they have the songwriting and the melody focused like uh tracks Mm-hmm. that are a hallmark of jrpg songs and just like video game music generally it's very melody focused um and but live instrumentation and guitars which are weirdly uncommon for this type of thing mm-hmm. and it gives it this like like kind of like bro ass like sound but used in a really elegant way and I think it's that meshing that makes it just fucking so good. Yeah, no, yeah, it's expertly implemented, I think, in a way that like you'd have to study music to really be able to express exactly how. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like using the electric guitars in the battle theme, like just works mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't feel corny. And yeah, like I compared it to Final Fantasy X, or on the Final Fantasy X episode, we talked about the final boss theme Mm. and how it was like a new metal song. (laughs) I was like, something like Xenoblade would have been more appropriate, Uh, where it's just like like the instrumentation is more like rock music, but it doesn't have like, doesn't sound like a contemporary rock song. Yeah. If you like take the battle theme... Uh, or at least this is like the the hard enemy battle theme that plays when you fight a unique monster or a boss. Yeah. And you play it by itself and then have two images and subject A is looking at uh, a group of anime characters like pulling swords off of their back as the fucking guitar like does that, the slide, or it's like... Yeah. And then on the other screen, you have a guy with leather pants and no shirt and really long, shaggy blonde hair doing that on a guitar. It's like one of them looks really corny and the other one just feels right for some reason. And it isn't the one where the guy's playing the guitar. Yeah, that's the power of like... Rock and roll. It's rock and roll, baby. (laughs) Hell yeah. Uh, No, but of um, like animation and Mm. like visual mediums uh, and music... Because I've heard people talk about this with Cowboy Bebop as well, where it implements like fight scenes to like jazz music, mm. and I've heard people talk about how like that just wouldn't work like in live action. Yep. And, but it like just is awesome <laughs> uh, in that show, and it's just like there's something about like marrying, um, like yeah, like animation or like a video game to music in a way. Like there's something that clicks about it. Like there's just something that works. Yeah. Just real good, yeah. And also oh, in my um, my tidbit on the music is that there's actually four different composers that worked on the soundtrack, uh, where you have uh, Yasunori Matsuda who worked on Chrono Trigger. Okay. Uh, and then you have Yoko Shimomura who did the Kingdom Hearts soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You have a woman named Manami Kyoda who did tracks for Super Smash Brothers, but mostly just this. And then another group of, like, I think it's three musicians who are, oh, I assume all composers, called Ace Plus. Okay. And they've done, like, music for, like, anime and video games, and, it, but are most known for this, I think. It's wild to me that I recognized any of that. Yep. There are two of it's like a, it's like a, like a super group mm-hmm. of composers. Like, Yoko Shimomura is 
uh, was brought on to do the early game stuff, so she did like the Colony Nine and stuff like that to like kind of set the mood. And then I think everything else is kind of divvied up. Like Ace Plus is the more rock focused stuff. I imagined a group of composer, a group of composers. There are three they, of them, want... and they go by the name Ace Plus. Sounds like a rock band. Yeah, to no. Me. I, I, in my head, I imagine that there are like three composers who decided they wanted to be Rush. Mm. Uh, but then decided to just keep composing music. But they're like for... <laughs> the Toto of uh, yeah uh, video game composing. But yeah, so there's like that's why you get such like a variety of uh, sounds. It, but somehow all mesh so well. Like yeah. it, it's just really it's in and it might just be me like this being so up my alley. But I remember playing this for the first time and being like this, <laughs> like this is like the modern classic video game soundtrack like this embodies all the stuff i like about like video game music growing up and it's delivering it in a way that like i didn't realize it hadn't been delivered in a long time like i love this soundtrack yeah no the soundtrack is is fantastic and i also do love it i i wish that i had played this game uh well We'll get into aesthetics here in one split Hot second. second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I had played this game earlier in its original form, I feel like I would have a much greater appreciation uh, for how good the soundtrack is. I appreciate how good the soundtrack is because I played this game for 120 hours. And it is not a soundtrack that gets boring. And there aren't any tracks that are actively grading on it. Now, and they know that they wrote the tracks to be like 10 minutes long before they looped because the areas are so big. Yes. Like they thought ahead and they were like, we don't want these to loop all the time. Yeah, and just like drive a... somebody mad. Yep. So, yeah, they're very long tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't wish that I played this game prior to the remaster, uh, because the definitive edition looks real good. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a really good update. Um, I remember when they first revealed it, thinking they made the characters look a little bit too, like, generic anime looking, and I felt like it would clash with, like, the environments a little much, but in motion it looks great. Yeah. And my worries were misplaced. (laughs) But, um, it's just such a big difference, you know? Yeah. Uh, didn't know how to take it. But this game, it's it feels really like it sits in a weird place because I feel like people use the terms remake and remaster interchangeably all the time. But I usually feel like I have a pretty good handle on what the difference is. But this, I don't know what I would call it. <laughs> because it feels like they redid the character models. But, like, the environments feel like maybe they just updated the textures. Like, some of the... I'm sure they overhauled this a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, especially going back and replaying. Um, they had to have upped the polygon counts of a lot of things. But, like, the environments look like they... When you... They look the way you remember them, just like in HD now. Yeah. Well, and the the UI is also a big yeah. update. Like, it's it's a pretty huge... Like, it is sweeping, like, the overhaul. Like, there isn't an element of it that is even close to the same. No, yeah, they the the graphic design was like a weak point of the original. Like the UI was kind of a train wreck. Yeah, and I fucking pooped all over the UI for Xenoblade Chronicles X. Mm. It, it's cuz it looks like the original Xenoblade Chronicles. <laughs> it's not that bad. No, it isn't. But yeah, 
It, it this feels more like a remake to me than it yeah. does a remaster. No, yeah, I think especially like going back and just we just booted up the original like a couple hours ago, mm-hmm. and like it's definitely more significant than I thought. Yeah. So yeah, I think I do lean remake. Uh, but I think I initially thought it was more of a in remaster territory. <laughs> well, I think we've established why people have trouble yep. differentiating them. Yeah, I just yeah. In my mind, something like uh, like RE make, like Resident Evil remake, where they've completely remade all the assets. That's mm-hmm. a remake. Or so, and something like uh, when we played Symphony of the Night on PS4, they just put that on in HD resolution. Yeah, that's a remaster. And uh, the Super Mario 3D All-Stars... Re- remaster? Is, uh, I wouldn't even go that far. That's more it's of a... It's HD. It's an emulation. It, it's a port, kind yeah. of, but yeah. But, you know. Technically, I think that falls under remaster. Potato, potato, po-twango. Po-twang, po-twang. <laughs> Some third thing to go in, because there are now three terms that we have to deal with. <laughs> No, but yeah, this game has stellar art direction, mm-hmm. and like you brought up on uh, earlier, whenever that was, <laughs> this half, the the first <laughs> half, I don't remember. But uh, yeah, like I don't like to make statements like this. I'm wishy-washy, I guess, as an adult, but I think this might be the coolest setting for a video game. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, like the the whole concept I just think is so cool. Like, there's just these two titans that are like planet sized. Mm-hmm. One of bionic or um, bionis. Yeah, no, like what's the biological life? Oh, I right. couldn't think yeah, of the yeah. word biological. Um, yeah, one has biological life, one has mechanical life, and like they the the titans were at war for assumingly like hundreds of years or whatever, and until they killed each other. <laughs> And now their their bodies are just planets for like life to spring forth on. It's just so cool, and I love it's and it falls off a little bit the further into the game you get. But I love how the beginning of the game's designed, the premier location being the Bionis's leg. Yeah, because it's like its its knee is up and it's right under the sword, so you get the sword in the skybox and you can see the Bionis in the distance and at night you can see its red eyes. That's their that's like, their halo moment. Yeah, it's so cool. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very good shit and it's all visual. Um, where because the context of it is like just assuming. You know, the physics of the Bionis is weird. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a way that is, like, inexplicable and hard to put your finger on, but you just gotta go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it does make these, like... <laughs> it has this, like... The, the Bionis being a formerly living being mm-hmm. gives all of the... Uh, like surrounding environment this like biological this natural look to it that is like kind of human biology kind of like a different sort of alien thing so you get these like rock formations that's like a characteristic thing of this game that are like basically big ribs that Mm -hmm. like come out everywhere um and just sort of like the makeup of of the land and the layout and stuff and it makes these really incredible fucking vistas. Uh, and, as we've mentioned before, nothing in this game is small. This is the Texas of games. <laughs> uh, 
all of the environments that you go through are fucking massive. Yep. So you get a real sense of scale for everything. Like, if you just walked from Colony 9, like, across the sword mm-hmm. or whatever. Sword Valley. Yeah, it would take you, like, hours. Like, hours and hours of just running. Yep. To get there. And it is, it's kind of insane. Like, there's yeah. so much in it. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's a, I don't know if you call it, like, a trope or, like, a technique, but I really like when games put, like, uh, like if your motivation in the story is to like get to a place, like you can always see it in the distance. Mm-hmm. Like Journey has the mountain, and like plenty of other games do stuff like this too. But then you can see it from different places. It's like in different skyboxes from like different perspectives. That stuff's always really cool for progression. Um, so I'm, I always have a big stiffy for that. <laughs> um, and yeah, this game has that like in spades. Yeah, even like pre you having a goal. Like, it'll just be, like, you look out there, and you're like, well, there's red lights in the distance. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah. Uh. And, and so, yeah, when you finally get over there, it's, like, a really cool feeling. Um, but, yeah, and, like, there's also, like, like some clever usage of, like, where on the Bionis is what kind of area. Mm-hmm. Like, I like that it's, like, lower back is a swamp. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, of uh, course. And it's, like, on the top of its head, it's got, like a like, a some kind of headdress as like a bowl and there's like an ocean in it uh like the uh, the arm because it's high up is like snowy and then it's other like though it's the bionis's arm no the mechanis's arm has fallen off in the water and it's like a beach now because it's down in the ocean yeah and i just think that stuff's cool and like also another awesome detail is um on the arm there's a wound it's oh, like a yeah, crater yeah. that's just like a sword wound from the battle it's just like stuff like that's just super super cool. Yeah, there's like the the yeah. Fuck. I don't know. There's a lot of of, <laughs> of wild shit on uh like in the in the environment design. Yeah, like they just really went for it. Like you had to give this team so many props for like doing this idea on the Wii. <laughs> that's and also like, a in, good point. And yeah. Pulling it off. Mhm. Yeah, cuz it has a similar like we what we did specifically after I like just fucked around and tried playing the game uh, <laughs> on the Wii was just go to locations where you can look and see stuff and see if you could look and then see those things and <laughs> you can like they do a very good job of uh they did a good job both originally in rendering it and in the remaster of updating it and adding little particle effects and mm-hmm. making everything like giving it the appropriate sense of distance that may have been a little bit flatter on the Wii. Yeah. So the game is really visually stunning now and had like a futuristic like tech sort of aesthetic to it when you see it on the Wii. You're mm-hmm. like, how did they render this on the on the thing that does Wii bowling? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Yeah. Uh yeah, in in it leads to, like, one of the only, like, gripes. Or it's not even a really a gripe. It's just, like, something I wish could have been better, and it just would have made the game even more awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, like, I feel like I wished the areas in the the Mechanis were a little bit more creative. I think I have, I mean... And the... I feel bad holding it against the game, given, like, what it is and, like, what right. an accomplishment it was on the Wii. But, like, I, I, I feel like that part of the game's a little bit too shallow. I agree. I think the way that it comes off to me is like the the lush world 
building that they did for the Bionis, mm-hmm. and they were like, gotta do the Mechanis now? And they were like, well, the justification is it's a robot, so it operates hyper-efficiently. It's nothing. It's just pistons and elevators. That's the whole thing. Yeah, it does work thematically that the inside of the Mechanis is just like a big factory for making Mechon. Yeah. I do, on the other hand, but like... You like... go to the, the hidden Machina village... You know, like on the arm, and like it's uh-huh. real cool. And it you're is like, cool. Ooh, like cool, like Robot World. What is Robot World like inside the Mechanis? And then it's just a factory. Mm-hmm. Aww. Well, I like when you go back um, to fight that guy, Egil. Egil, uh, who is like basically like fucking starts a nuclear war. And forces everybody out, but then you go back to kill him, and when you do go back, it's kind of, like, all fucked up and stuff, and there are some cool environments there, because you get to, like, walk across, like, a piece that has fallen over, yeah. and it's, like, there's, like, a disheveled element to it, and I think it looks better when it's in disarray, because you get a lot more of that naturalistic look that you get on the Bionis, yeah. but the majority of them, kind of, especially the the midpoint like where you go from the fallen arm yeah. up is just a very long nothing yeah it's just like a big dungeon <laughs> yeah that's when i started doing a lot of side quests because it was just like yeah. i didn't want to that's a smart thing to do is save your side questing for them <laughs> yeah but yeah like they're like the coolest parts of the mechanics are the arm and then, like, you, when you initially start climbing up the mechanics and you can just look back and see the bionis like that's real cool like that it needed more stuff like that yeah yeah that that, any more uh, variety they could have like squeezed into it i think would have gone a long way yeah especially since they do spent like set a lot of stuff in it Mm -hmm. though i guess on the plus side skip travel is very rarely restricted and maybe should have been more uh, when you're in enemy territory. Yeah, and so you can be like, I'm bored of looking at these gray walls, and then just, like, fucking flashback <laughs> real quick back to Colony 9, and mm. then walk, presumably, all the way back <laughs> over there. Uh, just a little breakup of the visuals. Mm-hmm. Do, do we want to go into Final Thoughts? Do you, do you have quick hits? Uh, I think we should probably just wrap it up. I'm, it's just inevitable that we're just going to leave some things out. Yeah, I'm in agreement on this. Do we have... Fiora comes back as a Mechon, it is the seventh party member thoughts. I was going to say future connected thoughts. <laughs> I was trying to make a very bad joke. Yeah, no, so. no. I, I admire your commitment. <laughs> um, God, where to even begin? Um, I like this game a lot. Uh, I played this, as I said, like in 2016, I think, uh, somewhere around there, uh, just in my free time while we were doing the podcast, and just kind of, like, I knew it was a game I'd been interested in for a long time, and it was harder to get at the time, Um, but when I finally played it, like, it just really grabbed me, like, it feels like the kind of thing that it it almost kind of captures, like, I think the way people remember JRPGs on the Super Nintendo, um, in a more modern way, which is kind of rare, I think. So it, it immediately, like, felt special, I think. Um, and 
it, it does have its weak points. It, it it has like some rough edges, as I said. Like I feel <laughs> like shirtless character design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's definitely like holes to be poked in it, and I think it's a lot to do with like they probably didn't have as big a budget as they would have now. Like at the time, they were kind of at a low point. I think mm-hmm. when they got bought by Nintendo. Um, so, but they, man, did they spin straw into gold. Like they, I think this game's a real accomplishment and achievement and it, it really speaks to me in a lot of ways. Like, I, I think, like I said, like I identify a lot with them as a developer. Uh, I, I don't know how, I feel like there's a better way to put that, but I can't think of it, but <laughs> I, I just feel like they, the, how, the amount they prioritize, like the game world and the visuals and like the creative setting is all stuff that like I I really appreciate uh, and I think can really elevate a game and they put a lot of stock in those things um, and I, I, I just almost wish this game came out like five years earlier like if this would have come out when I was like 14 I think it'd be one of my favorite games of all time um, and uh, it as it is playing it as an adult I feel like it comes close uh, it is really good and I still think it's better than its two sequels. Um, I think it's still the best one in the in the franchise. Like, it was really ambitious. I like all the secondary mechanics. The other games don't really have that kind of stuff as much. Um, and it's just like it's just this. I feel like it's a gem. It's like it's a kind of game that doesn't come around that often. Um, it, as I said, it feels special at least to me, and I think probably to a lot of JRPG fans. And I don't know. I feel like I can't say enough good things about it. Like it, 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 it's, as I was saying, it's like, it speaks to me in a lot of ways and does the things I care about really well in such a way that like, I kind of just don't care about the flaws. Like if we weren't doing this for the podcast, I feel like I'd have nothing bad to say about it. Uh, I, I just, it just up my alley. I like it a lot. Um, and I guess I will stop, uh, just, uh, praising it and say yeah i'm just i'm really into it and uh that's my that's my final thoughts yeah uh the running joke with this game for the longest time is that like it we were like oh it's like andy's favorite best game of all time and <laughs> just, we just all refused to play imagine it. you played it and had no one to talk to about it for years yeah it, <laughs> it is... was just burning a hole in my head <laughs> uh but no i think I said like earlier in the podcast and really should have just saved it as, as my thesis because it would have made this a lot easier to articulate, um, that a lot of people like to point to this game as being a true like love it or hate it kind of game. And I think that it really does come down to that more than I would normally agree with. Uh, this is a game that I expected to hate. Um, I expected to despise probably uh especially watching the combat the combat is you can't watch this game and have any idea what's going on none at all you literally watching this it's like the most unappealing game to watch play maybe i've ever seen like like zork might be worse to watch because it's just text and it'd be hard to keep up uh-huh uh but, like, it it just looks like nothing is happening. But, like, mentally and, and physically, you're doing a lot to sort of, like, optimize. So, I agree. I think that most of the time when somebody asks me about a game, I will try and provide, like, two pros and a con. If, I, if it's something I'm, like, wanting to recommend to somebody. And the con for me in this game uh, is 
that the game doesn't allow for like expressive play as much as it in its combat mechanics. The combat system is like the only thing that I will ever say like deride about this for the most part. I think that there's some some loose nuts that could be tightened to make it a little bit stronger. Um, it it, uh, it wants you to optimize, and a lot of the optimization is really fun, and that's where I took a lot of pleasure in the game. But then you like take the flip side of it, and it's like, yeah, but there's just so much depth to it. There's a lot to understand and to learn and a lot to do to make yourself better. And all the while, you're in this big fucking crazy world that we talked about with the slamming guitar soundtrack that is great. Uh, and what ends up happening is that a lot of the flaws that I feel the game has are little things that just sort of get lost in the minutia. We, we joked about Charlotte's dumb character design probably a thousand times before we recorded oh, yeah. this podcast. And it didn't come up. Yeah. It's mostly the costumes. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, why why you put a tits on the robot? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a question I have for whoever designed uh, the character of Linnea is why you put a tits on the robot. Because it is not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, and that's, that's basically the quality of criticism that I would come up with when I was playing the game. <laughs> is I'd be like, well, why do the Mechonists... Who are the Mechonists... In comparison to the Mechon, why are they different? Oh, the Machina? Or the Machina, yeah. Really. Why do they put them there? Why are they... What, are they naturally occurring beings? I think they are. Yeah, yeah but are the Mechon also naturally no, they're made in the beings? factory. Which, they're made by the planet, mm-hmm. which is kind of like how life is. is. Yep. <laughs> Don't question. <laughs> that's, the, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. No, that, definitely not to hijack your final thoughts, but... <laughs> I think that, yeah, that's definitely feels like one of those things that they don't go into as much like we were talking about earlier. For sure. But what I'm saying is that that's the kind of dumb shit that I, I was thinking about when I'm trying to, like, figure out what it is, like, what makes the game tick, right? And when you come up with, when that is your question, then most likely you're missing the the bigger point, which is that... The things that you aren't questioning, the fact that the game does look so beautiful and does play really well, uh, really overshadow most of the complaints that I have. And I am not, like, a JRPG fan. Um, This game did come around at a good time in my life, not in a grandiose way. Nobody died recently, and I was in a depressive state. I just didn't have a lot to do. Uh, And this game filled that hole in pretty nicely. Um it's got a lot for you if you're a fan of this kind of a game. And even if you aren't a fan of this game, this kind of a game, I feel like it's worth giving a shot. And also muscling through the really early game stuff because it's when you get to that depth and that complexity that it really shines. Yeah, it's easy to bounce off at the beginning, I think. Yes, yes. Thank you for listening to Noclip this week. What are we talking about next time? Next time, we're going to be talking about Devil May Cry. A much shorter game. It really (laughs) and truly is. Uh, (laughs) uh, If you are somehow unfamiliar, Devil May Cry is the Capcom franchise that, in a bizarre turn of events, kind of sprung out of the Resident Evil team 
uh, that is like basically the high water mark for hack and slash action games, character action game. Yeah, mm-hmm. the going forward from its release. So uh, I'm excited to go back to it. I haven't played it since like the early 2000s. So I've never played it. Yeah, it's it, one of those ones I've always wanted to go back for and just never have. I should basically come at it with like the same level of enthusiasm that you came at this, <laughs> even though I don't feel that way about it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so check it out then. Until that time, you can get a hold of us. All of our contact information is on our website at noclippodcast.com or on splattershot.pro. There you can find links to the YouTube channel where you can find our all of our old videos, uh, playlists of the different sub-shows and shit. Uh, you can get a link to our Twitter, our uh, Discord server, where you can come talk about the game. Have you never played Xenoblade? Uh, like, probably all the people on our Discord <laughs> server, and I'm going to go like, man, why did you guys talk for, like, two-plus hours on that? Uh, let us know that you haven't listened to this episode yet. <laughs> Backslash that like button. Hell Yeah. This is a long story for a stupid payoff. I mean, that's classic chat.